Hello, and thanks for downloading This is US Sustainability, the brand new podcast from the US Sustainability Alliance. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and coming up on this first episode, we're getting up close and personal with US family farmers and producers. We're going to be hearing my interviews with Jay Hardwick and his two sons, Mead and Marshall, from their farm in northeast Louisiana, just by the Mississippi River. And then we're heading northwest to Cluckwan in Haines, Alaska, to hear from fisherman Bill Thomas. We'll also hear from Monty Peterson, a fourth-generation farmer from North Dakota, and dairy farmer Tina Hinchley, who is based in Cambridge, Wisconsin. So loads of great content to come. But before all that, I'm thrilled to be joined online by US Sustainability Alliance Executive Director David Green. Welcome to the podcast, David. Should we start by you perhaps giving our listeners a quick introduction to the US Sustainability Alliance and, and talking through its aims? Thanks, Russell, and good to be here. The Sustainability Alliance was basically set up in 2013 by a group of U.S. farm associations and organizations. They're called the U.S. Department of Agriculture Cooperators, and they will range across a wide uh, array of different sectors and uh, organizations. The purpose of the Sustainability Alliance was really the concern that many overseas customers of U.S. farm products and food products had very little understanding of the long, long-term history of conservation and sustainability in the U.S. When we started the project, we spoke to quite a number of European uh, stakeholders, officials, industry representatives, farmers, uh, NGOs, about their views about U.S. sustainability in agriculture and food. And the understanding was extremely limited, and the perception was actually very negative, uh, American farms were huge. They didn't care about the land. Uh, They used chemicals, pesticides, GMOs. And the reality is extremely different from that perception. So the underlying message of the Sustainability Alliance is to promote U.S. products, but to also promote and inform overseas customers of what exactly happens on the farm, on the forests and on the seas. And um, why launch this podcast? Well, again, it's part of reaching out to inform our customers and uh, consumers and people in Europe as to what actually happens on U.S. farms and forestries and and fisheries. Uh, Those are the three sectors that we basically represent. And the the alliance is made up of, at the moment, 21 of those cooperators. They range across the Organic Trade Association, the Alaska Seafood, and we'll hear a bit about Bill Thomas in a minute, uh, the soy industry, the corn industry, leather and hide industry, dairy, very wide range of uh, organisations in the supply chain. Now, I mentioned in my intro, this episode is all about family farms. Why did you pick this particular topic to uh, kick off the series? Good question, and really goes back to what I just said earlier. The perception of American farms is huge. Ranches, land. Uh, One of the people we interviewed in 2014 asked me if uh, American farmers preferred a helicopter or a light plane. And I asked, sorry, what for? And he said, well, to fly over their farms, they're huge. The reality is the average farm in the United States is 450 acres, about 180 hectares. That's really not a large farm. Now, of course, there are some large farms, and we'll hear from the Hardwicks later, their 10,000-acre farm. But again, it will be a family farm. U.S. Department of Agriculture's uh, latest census shows that 98% of American farms are family-owned and operated. This is a far cry from the 
a sort of popular image and uh, misperception that they're just great corporations. Very far from the truth. You mentioned the Hardwicks there. We've, we've got the interview with Jay Hardwick and his two sons lined up now. W- what are you excited to hear about from them? Well, I want to hear from them about just the, the very tradition, uh, Jay and, and his two sons. How's that working out? Is there any older generation, younger generation issues or does it all work together? And again, I'd be really looking forward to hearing just how they see the family farm in their own family and how it comes down the generations. I think that's one thing that uh, struck me when I went out onto farms in the US is how deeply the farmers hold the passing on the farm from family down through the family's fourth, fifth generation. Really struck me that people would say, oh, I'm the fourth generation or I'm the third generation. We don't really hear that in Europe very much. It's very much an article of faith in the US. Well, um, let's have a listen to that first interview then. So I'm now joined online from Louisiana by Jay Mead and Marshall Hardwick, who couldn't be better placed to represent family farms on this episode because, as I understand it, when Jay hands over the reins to Mead and Marshall, they will become the fourth generation of Hardwicks to run their farm. Uh, welcome all three of you to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, join us. Jay, let's start with you. Let's just get a bit of background to the farm. Where in Louisiana are you based? And uh, yeah, just give us a little background in terms of the size and what you're growing on the farm there. Yeah, okay, Russell. Uh, Harvick Planting Company is on what's called Somerset Plantation, and uh, we are in northeast Louisiana, adjacent to the Mississippi River, or for those that uh, are more aware of where New Orleans is, we are 200 miles approximately up from upstream from New Orleans. Our farming operation, Somerset Plantation, is uh, approximately 10,000 hectares, uh, or 20,000 acres for us, approximately, and uh, 60% of that, or 6,000 hectares, is in agricultural production lands, and 40%, or 4,000 hectares, are in uh, managed timberland, wildlife, uh, riparian areas, uh, conservation reserve programs, and the like. Uh, We primarily focus on cotton, corn, soybeans, and grain sorghum. Uh, Had some experience in the past with uh, food-grade products such as sunflowers and peanuts, and that sort of rounds up what we do. Can you give us a little bit of the family history from from the farm as well? Uh, Yes. I'm um, a recent arrival into agriculture, at least from uh, the Hardwick side of it. My former career was in uh, education at the university level, and uh, I met my wife-to-be, who is uh, from Louisiana and a farming family who had a long history of production and ownership. And uh, I moved here and thinking that I would go on, but uh, I stayed. I was... uh, an attraction that uh, took me by surprise and has been a real fulfillment. But greater yet is the uh, opportunity of going forward and what that means as a family. Uh, My wife's family is uh, very rooted in the property, and I saw this as a a very good thing for our family, our children. And so our sons have uh, embarked upon the same voyage, and that uh, wraps around the whole idea of sustainability going forward that we can talk about a little bit later and how your land moves forward with the next generation and the types of uh, uh, responsibilities you might see involved in that land. So I'm, I'm really thrilled that they're very interested and in, not only interested, but they're participating very vigorously in adopting the farming operation moving forward. Yeah. But when did the farm start in, in, you know, in terms of how long has the Hardwick family been there? Well, my wife's family has uh, owned the property since the 1940s. 
And prior to that, it was owned by a, a English family, the Perkins, so going back to 1814. They owned the property uh, then, and, and now it's in the, uh, a new family um, hands. So that has a long uh, lineage, very small operation of a number of people that have been involved in it uh, from an ownership point of view. Great. Okay. And Mead and Marshall, perhaps you can just explain your roles now in, in the family business. So um, yeah, Marshall, let, let's start with you. So Mead and I both went to college. Mead went to SMU and I went to uh, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. It's the local university. My degree was in agriculture business. So I um, went on to get a master's in the School of Plant Environment and Soil Science. So I, my studies were agronomy related soil sciences, and just agriculture in general. A lot of my responsibilities focus around that. I do a lot of strategic planning for crop rotations, variety selections, irrigation management, and a lot of field activities. Now, there's a lot of crossover. I'll let him explain, but we have uh, six employees, which all have assigned tractors. So we don't particularly drive tractors a lot, but during harvest season, fertilizing and planting uh, requires a lot of manpower. We take a lot of responsibilities out in the field of general operations. And Mead, how about yourself? So um, my path back here uh, was a little bit different. Marshall's was a little more direct. I went to college in Dallas, Texas, Southern Methodist University, where I got a bachelor's of business in finance. Um, I took a real estate finance job in Dallas, did real estate commercial real estate for um, Federal Express and a few other Fortune 500 companies in and around North America. Did that till about 2014. And then I returned to the farm with uh, my wife and two boys in 2014. And 2017, we, we had our, added our daughter. But in terms of my role at the farm, based on my uh, degree in business, past business experience, my role primarily is financial and also strategic planning in terms of our, uh, I guess, business vision. Marshall handles more of the agronomy vision. So I focus mainly on all the finances and a lot of other crossover, as Marshall mentioned, during, you know, we're about to start harvesting corn. So we'll be very involved just with the actual operation of farming uh, beyond the office. Do you think you guys make a good team working together? I would like to think so. I think so. <laughs> there was a, a, a pause there. <laughs> As a father, it's, it's great to watch it because they bring uh, two different sides of a very important equation in agriculture going forward is not only the agronomy and the production side, but the financial side. Well, what they've yet to uh, embark upon totally is what I do is on the marketing side, uh, making certain that we know our price points, we know our cost of production, which they all provide me the information and we together uh, set uh, goals and so forth. So they're very much involved, and it's great to see the interaction that they, they have, and, and they're very synergetic, and it's a pleasure to watch happen in this generation. Well, listen, obviously a, a key part of what we're focusing on in, in this podcast series is how U.S. farmers are committed to sustainability. So, Jay, I, I'm very aware doing a little bit of research before this uh, this recording. I, I know you've won multiple awards for your, your work in uh, conservation and leadership in sustainable agriculture. And, and most recently, you were inducted in the Louisiana Agricultural Hall of Distinction. So um, a belated congratulations to you for that. It's a tremendous um, honour. Um, do you want to just talk us through what sustainability means for you personally and, and how you're achieving it on, on the farm? 
uh, the, the notion of, of sustainability just didn't happen overnight or an epiphany. It, it really was an evolution uh, for me uh, as an understanding of what the uh, capacity of the landscape is and what the needs of a family are from income. So sustainability just wasn't an act of preserving the landscape, but it was a, a balance of finding a, a balance between the landscape resources, uh, the habitat, the wildlife that was there, the plant material that was there, but also the reality of uh, going forward of the revenue stream that a family depends upon. And so blending those two together to come up with a sustainability idea of going forward, what that meant to me uh, and what we've uh, explored uh, in more detail is the practices by which we can secure that not only productive capacity uh, in treatment of the landscape and preserving the opportunities going forward, but also preserving it through the family's involvement and understanding their role and acceptance of that and what that might mean for the future. So it became a kind of a complex uh, idea to explore, but that's what we're doing. So all the um, practices that we use in the field are meant to preserve the, the soil going forward in its productivity, and that's linked to the, the revenue stream of productivity as well. And they go hand in glove. They, they shouldn't uh, supersede one another. So if you have a viable, resilient landscape and a productive capacity in the soil, one's going to most likely have a vibrant uh, increasing revenue stream outside of what markets do going forward so that future generations have a fully capacity uh, to produce for their generations going forward. Uh, I think that's the overall idea of sustainability for me. Can you talk through how the you know, the landscapes of the farm is, is made up. For example, do you, you've got a lot of wildlife habitat within there, haven't you? Well, the commitment by the, the family and the generations of it is pretty apparent by the uh, what I said earlier about the amount of land involved in agriculture um, of 10,000 10, hectares. 6,000 of it is in agriculture, not by itself, but is surrounded by uh, 4,000 uh, hectares of landscape in terms of managed timber, wildlife habitat areas, uh, rivers and streams and bayous, and they become uh, equally as important. So maintaining that in the total landscape, it's a very organic looking farm in the sense that it's not heavily compartmentalized with only wildlife in one minor section and production in another overbearing section. They're all integrated within that. So you one becomes very uh, aware of uh, the landscape and the uh, wildlife that, that uh, emerges from that. With the production practices where we now leave uh, unharvested grain, for example, purposely in some areas, and also just residue, uh, that becomes foraging opportunities for wildlife. And in our case, the Louisiana black bear was on the endangered species list, and it has uh, revived in great numbers uh, because they're a foraging ap uh, animal. They are an opportunist and they'll feed on residue and, and even um, uh, dead carcasses of, of that matter. So we, we see a great emergence in wildlife recovering as we uh, have minimal practices on our agricultural lands. Great to hear. Um, Mead, talk us through some of the technology you're using on the farm and, and how that goes towards improving sustainability. You know, luckily, Dad was always uh, wanting to use different tools, whether that be something old that's used in a different way or, or technology, but also seeing that technology generally was, was going to help us drive, drive change. So thankfully, we, we don't you know, argue over the younger generation wanting to try something new and the older generation not wanting to. That's a battle that, thank, thank goodness, we just don't have to, to deal with. 
Uh, but in terms of technology, we have really gone into more variable rate seeding where we put more plants or more seed in areas of field that we know to be more fertile so we can increase revenue there, limit exposure in certain areas that, that might not be as productive. Something that we've gone to in the last four years is uh, intensively grid sampling, soil sampling, a third of our acres every single year. So we, we soil sample about 2,500 acres every single year to get a better idea of what nutrients are in the ground. And then we can therefore uh, plan our fertility requirements for the upcoming crop around those uh, samples versus just sort of blanket applying uh, fertilizer, which uh, we all know can contribute to nutrient runoff, dead zones and water and other damages to the environment. So those are some of the big technology items, things that people really won't, that don't think about in the general public that farmers do is that we all have GPS driven tractors. Um, operators rarely have to do much other than sit in the tractor, monitor what's happening and turn it around at the end of the field, uh, which really contributes to efficiencies, less fatigue on people. There's lots of other technologies that we could go on and on about, but those are some of the, the big highlights of, of where uh, we're taking the farm today. And Marshall, what about moving forward? Are, are there technologies that you're looking to use in, in the future that you're planning to implement at all? Well, we're just kind of, you know, that is based upon what uh, companies come out with. Um, I think tractors that drive themselves without a actual driver is in the future. How far, I don't know. Um, but we, we spend a lot of money and time in looking at new, uh, new inventions, new technologies that come out. Um, some we just say, hey, that probably won't work for our farm. Some we try and they do not work out for our farm. And then some we keep for, for several years. So it, it's just important to us to keep, keep an eye on uh, magazines, uh, websites, just what's what's new, what's coming out. We, we use a lot of technologies for irrigation purposes, uh, monitoring moisture in our soils. Those soil moisture sensors, it seems like there's a new type, a better one every year. So we don't adopt every one, but we try the ones that seem to fit us the best and keeping you know an eye out down the down the pipeline, so to speak, to uh, see what's coming. Yeah, so just based on that, what criteria do you use to to choose these new technologies? Well, it, I guess the, the driving force would be return on the investment. And, but technology is not just a piece of machinery uh, or software. It can be technology in the seed. So we do a lot of trials on farm and where we evaluate new, new varieties that are coming out for large agriculture companies, seed companies. When it comes to actual technology and a physical piece of machinery or uh, device, it's kind of trial and error. I've got a little to add on that. I mean, a lot of the things that we try are based around the fact that we are trying to become more efficient, more profitable, and more sustainable. We don't always try things just because we think it's going to be more sustainable. If we are more efficient and more profitable, we, we are more sustainable. So a lot of those things really work hand in hand as to why. But at the end of the day, we are not in control of the price of the product that we sell. So the American farmer, as Marshall said, we are always trying to become more efficient because the only control we have is our control of our cost. As we mentioned earlier, if we soil sample, we become more efficient with our fertilizer. We generally are using less, so that is more sustainable. So a lot of these things really add on to each other. A very specific example, Marshall, I'm sorry to uh, interject on this, but with the, uh, we bought a piece of equipment that is used to automatically load our sprayer, which we use to you know, spray fertilizers, herbicides, insecticides, and that kind of thing. We demoed this device a couple years ago, 
And in one week, we increased our sprayer efficiency or operating time versus waiting and loading by over 144%. So we burned less fuel. We got over it quicker. We missed rain events. We were more efficient. We loaded the exact precise amount of chemicals required, um, which all of that is makes us sustainable in the eyes of the public, but also sustainable as a business. Jay, we, we touched on this just a bit earlier um, when I was asking about the, the guys working as a team, but but how does it feel for you to see you know your sons taking o- over the farm? Well, it, it's really very gratifying at a, a level, but it's also kind of anxious uh, for me because uh, I'm taking less and less a role in something I've been involved with a long, long time, and, and that, that's probably pretty natural. So we uh, try to minimize any kind of anxiety there for me and my sons are real patient with me and <laughs> uh, moving down that road. So I have such great confidence in what they're doing and where they're going because they've demonstrated that with uh, great uh, efficiency, particularly this environment that we've been in agriculture where we've had extremely low commodity prices uh, for a lot of reasons, supply and demand issues, of course. And, and they've worked through those uh, with great skill and effort uh, in the details that are really hard for most farmers to want to really realize, to get down to what the real cost of production is and how that leads to other things. So I've been impressed with those details and it gives me and uh, my wife, their mother, great confidence in their leadership going forward because they have a tremendous responsibility on their shoulders uh, with this kind of property and and the amount of uh, family members who aren't in production but are part of the uh, family organization uh, they have a huge responsibility and they're earning that uh, leadership role. And uh, I'm just glad to see it and be here to watch it happen. So no no pressure on the guys then. Do, <laughs> do you actually have a, a handover date? Have you got a plan to, to step back and retire fully? I think it's it's, it's happening in a very natural way. Uh, I'm focused on the, the marketing side of it, uh, but it's supported by all the efforts they do. Uh, I uh, confer with them about decisions we're making. So that's probably the the big last commitment uh, that I'm involved with actively there. I do drive a tractor from time to time. Uh, I'm one of the few people that enjoy certain activities out on the farm that others don't. So I'm called into action at that time. I don't operate uh, any of the harvesting equipment anymore, but so I'm, I'm still actively involved and engaged and I'm there for advice if, if needed or asked. Uh, sometimes I might provide more than what uh, they would like, but uh, they're very accommodating with me. Dad brings a tremendous amount for our team, and he takes the time to read about calls and puts and, and the markets, and he does a lot of a lot of reading that maybe some of us can't dive into so deeply. So agriculture in general, I would say, is a occupation that you don't retire from. Um, my mom's father, uh, my grandfather, he he retired um, when he was ninety three or ninety four. And he passed away a couple months later. And after that, my mom took his job. So it's just not something you just step away from. He, I mean, I, dad will be involved with the farm till the day he dies. And I would imagine I will be too, hopefully. Need it. Any comments to add to, to Marshall's? Yeah, I agree with that. It, it's kind of different. You know, if you were, um, I guess, an accountant in an office, uh, you know, well, I hung my cleats up and I retired. You walk away from it. But when you live here, it's sort of different to, to be able to just you know, think that you're going to walk away from it. Um, but to add into what dad said, I mean, you know, we have more or less transitioned the leadership and operation of, of our operation to Marshall. And I, I mean, we pretty much make 98% of all the business decisions. Dad takes care of all of the marketing. 
Um, we felt that that was an avenue that he was really excels at, and it takes a lot of time and an interest and intention to do that well when we were trying to run an operation uh, of this size. So, you know, we we have really taken on, you know, making all the capital expenditure decisions, uh, putting forth uh, purchasing agreements for equipment, things like that. So, you know, to maybe answer your question as to when it's transitioned, the, the real operation of it probably has transitioned, but the involvement has not gone away. Well, so it's great, honestly, to, to listen to, to the three of you kind of play off each other and clearly working together extremely well. I'm not sure I could do that with my family. <laughs> um, but just to, just to finish off, you know, given everything we're talking about in terms of sustainability and, and, and obviously this focus on, on family farms, is there any key message you'd like our listeners to take from this uh, podcast? Yeah, I, w- I would like to throw this. Uh, I think being patient is one of the things that's a uh, prerequisite to um, a commitment to sustainability, whether it's the agricultural production and or the or the family involvement going forward, it's like compounding interest. It may not seem very significant at first when you make these changes. Uh, they're not uh, real knee-jerk things. It might be a percent and a half increase or improvements on all kinds of, of things over, over a period of time, but that adds up. And if one is willing to be patient with that process and allow that, you have a multiplier effect that after, say, five years, 10 years, we're looking back, whatever your benchmarks might be, uh, you'll see tremendous progress. It's early stages where I think uh, producers and people in general get frustrated. They don't see a a rapid response. And we're making commitments that are generational, that are long-term. And for them to be something other than ephemeral or short-lived, one has to really explore the uh, bedrock of issues that are involved there and figure out a game plan and be patient and, and allow it to work and make those small changes and let them add up to be big changes throughout the, the generation of the farm. That's great. Jay Mead, Marshall Hardwick, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, David, what struck you most about what Jay Mead and Marshall had to say? I think the really underlining point and the one that really needs to be emphasised in the whole discussion about sustainability is financial sustainability. The point that was made was that cost is a factor for any farmer, no matter how large or how small that farmer is, to try and keep the input cost down. And in the interview, Mead pointed out that they always look at cost when they're adopting a technology. It's one thing to have a technology that's going to work, make the farm more efficient, maybe make it more environmentally friendly, but it has to also help the financial bottom line. So looking at the cost factor and the financial implications of sustainability is something that is really critical. It it is part of the the, the three-legged stool, if you will, um, sustainability, environmental, social and economic. And too often people forget the economic side. And just on on that point, again, it's important to emphasize that farmers the world over, again, no matter how big or small, are not going to use a technology unless it delivers a benefit. If it doesn't deliver a benefit, they're not going to use it. Well, before we hear our second interview, coming up in the series, we have an episode dedicated to animal welfare. And in that show, I speak to Tina Hinchley, a dairy farmer from Wisconsin. Now, Tina also has strong connections to family farming. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more about that. And so I started by asking her about the family history on her farm. My husband's family has been farming way, 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 way back. Um, my father and mother-in-law purchased the farm in 1958, and we purchased it from them in the year 2000. And that didn't mean that they retired. 
that means that we farmed with them. And as time is going on right now, our daughter, Anna, of our four kids, has chosen to come back to the farm. And she is working with us full time. And she will be the one that will be taking over as Dwayne and I decide to retire. That's how, how the whole thing goes. You just pass it on if you can. So that's what I was going to say. I mean, why does that family legacy mean so much to you personally? You know what? You're going to make me cry. Because everything that we've got going here is because of Dwayne's father. And he cared enough to keep this place in good condition so we could slide right in and take over ownership. Same thing goes for Anna. We need to make sure that we have a working environment for our future so that they can afford to get into it. And we need to help them and hold their hands all the way through the whole transition process. If we don't have a legacy for our children and a legacy that the community can see, I want to say it's, it's completely irresponsible as farmers to not have that. We have to have something to show what we have worked so hard for. And a legacy um, for us is all of this. And thank you, Grandpa Keith, because he was the one who instilled in us about making sure everything we were doing was right and proper. And basically also that a beautiful farm is a good farm to look at. Okay, time for our second feature interview for this episode. This time it's Bill Thomas, a fisherman from Alaska. David, what do you know about Bill? Well, Bill is a native Alaskan and his family uh, traces way back. Uh, Father, grandparents, uncles, all are fishermen. And one thing that struck me when we were first working with the uh, Alaska fishermen was the family connections In uh, one of our printed materials, we have a little postcard with information about the Sustainability Alliance. And we have an image of a farmer in the front and the back. We have 12-year-old Natalie Granham, who calls herself a fisherman. Her father, mother and younger brother see themselves as fishermen. Not fisherwoman or fisher child, but fishermen. And it's very much rooted in the Alaskan fabric. And with Bill, we'll hear about his community, Native Alaskan community, and how he is working with his sons in sustainable seafood. Well, let's hear from Bill now. I am now joined online from Clackwan in Haines, Alaska, by fisherman Bill Thomas. Bill, thanks so much for joining the podcast. I'm going to make a huge assumption here in that I doubt many of our European uh, listeners will know where Haynes is without without Googling it. I certainly had to. Let's just start by you giving, giving a bit of background to the wonderful place where I understand you were born and raised. Thank you. Yes. If you know where southeast Alaska is, we're up at the top of what they call the Panhandle. And uh, Haynes is located right up all the way up to the top. And we're 40 miles from the Canadian border. So we can drive through Canada down to the U.S. And we're 90 miles from Juneau, Alaska. And so we're up in the northern part of southeast Alaska, as far north as you can get. Sounds beautiful. And it's a native Alaskan village, is that right? Yes, Haynes was too, but it, it's more, uh, it's mixed right now, a little bit of everybody here. And uh, I was born and raised in Haynes and and Klukwan both. And, and would I be right in saying that pretty much everyone you knew when you were growing up was involved in, in fishing in, in some way? Yes, all my my great uncles, my grandfather, my uncles, all were involved in the fishing industry. Uh, 
the village of Cluckwan would vacate and go to Haynes. And there was a company called Haynes Packing Company. And it had like 30 homes and the village would move there. And all the husbands fished. And so my family were fishermen. And uh, the stigma was if you're Alaska Native, you're a fisherman. They would learn how to live first. They fished in the summer and then laid around in the winter, then, then become loggers or miners, you know, enjoyed the, the, the fishing. When did you start? At what age? I was probably about 12 or 13 fishing with my uncles. And my job was putting the fan belt on the engine to keep the uh, mechanical drive to pick the reel that pulled the net in. And I'd sit inside the cabin and make sure that belt stayed on the engine. And then in, uh, I worked in the cannery in 63 when I was 16. My mom worked out there. She was a union rep. And then in 66, I worked on the a tender, the Pacific Queen with Stan Lang. Then I went into the Army in 66, and when I got out, I came home and started fishing with my best friend, Larry Albecker, in 1969. And I've been gillnetting ever since. Amazing. And, and just talk us through the setup then that you've got there. What size of boat, and what are you fishing exactly? Well, in, in my life, I've fished uh, three boats. And the boat I have now is a 34-foot. It's a big little boat. It'll pack quite a bit of poundage, and it's um, built for the weather here. It's fiberglass, and I built it in 89, 89, 87, 89, somewhere, and uh, been fishing it ever since. I was an airplane mechanic in the Army, and so uh, maintenance is a priority. So we keep the boat in tip-top shape, and it's called the Raven's Walk. It's red and black boat, and we keep it painted and maintenance all the time. And when you say we, you're working with your son, aren't you? Yes, I, my son Cole. He's been with me since he's 12. He's 39 now. And uh, he calls himself the heir apparent, but he doesn't like gillnetting. <laughs> and I said, well, you, you can't just use the boat for halibut fishing anymore. We had 28,000 pounds, but because the, the, the stock was going down, they lowered our quota. And we have like 95 or 9,600 pounds. So we lost almost 20,000 pounds of quota mm. and halibut. And other than halibut, what, what else is this salmon and shrimp? Is that right? Yeah, we gill that shrimp. In uh, in the shrimp fish, you know when you when you're out fishing, how long are you out on the boat for at any particular time? Well, when we go halibut fishing, it's usually about five days from the time we leave to the time we come back, just to make sure we have quality fish. And when we gill that, we go for three days. This week is two days because the the sustainability that we have, there was no fish in one system here, so they closed some areas and um, opened about. 40 or 50 miles south of us, so we'll have to run down there. And a gear restriction to allow the fish that uh, aren't making it up the river to go through the nets. And we'll go in after a bigger species of fish, uh, coho and chum salmon, letting the reds or sockeye go through. So, Bill, we, we mentioned your son, Cole, earlier. I mean, how, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, he's now working with you? And also, what's the plan for when you eventually, I, I know you've worked 50 plus years, but eventually you're going to retire at some point. Yes, well, one of the things that we, when, they, when I got married, and we, I had a smaller boat, and uh, I always had a deckhand. The wife never fished with me. Then we built this bigger boat, and we had children. We put the kids on board with us, and we entertained them with TV. We had portable TV, but they fished with me, and uh, I think we kind of weeded out which ones didn't want to fish and which ones would. And Cole, is, he's got a great reputation with the cold storages on quality fish. And he prides himself. He won't let us stay out over three days. Got to get in and deliver the fish because of the quality. Like I said, I, I want him to gill that also, but he doesn't want to. I said, well, you don't have to 
be a highlighter. I got told, I said, just because I'm a legend in my mind doesn't mean you have to be. Just go out. But the quote has a reputation. So, I, you know, I think that scares the kids of trying to compete with what I do. But I says, you know, I've been doing it 52 years. There's a difference. But hopefully he'll he'll decide that he wants to do that. If not, maybe the other son, Gabriel, who's looking around trying to do something too, maybe they can fish together. And one of the goals that I have is Glacier Bay. I have a permit, a lifetime permit in Glacier Bay. I'm trying to, I'm lobbying our U.S. senators in our state and our representative to change the law there so I can give that lifetime permit to immediate family. And it's only a hundred and some permits in there. And uh, they like the idea. Otherwise, it's just cruise ships would be going there. But then that gives them a, a place to fish also. That's for just halibut. And the gillnet permit, like I said, you, you go anywhere you want that's open. And they put the openings up every week. Now, j- just changing tact a little bit, Bill, I, kn- I know you've got, as well as the fishing side of things, you're, you're quite involved in politics as well. Do you want to just tell us the background, you know, how, how that all came about and, and how that links to the fishing side of things as well? My grandmother was uh, very influential in Alaskan politics, Mildred Sparks, and she's an emeritus in Alaska Native Sisterhood. We were raised by her because my mom had tuberculosis, so we spent a lot of years with my gram. And all the politicians in Alaska would come to see her because she was very influential in the Native community. And so we got to meet them. And then in 1976, her daughter took me to Washington, D.C. to help lobby to get us into what we call Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And that kind of opened the door politically for me. And I've been involved in politics since, spent eight years in the legislature, been a lobbyist since 1976, and presently work for the governor right now. Because of all that, I know how to have influence in the fishing industry and, and complain and, and people. It bothers them, but I tell you, you know, I know what I'm talking about. After 52 years of fishing, I'm concerned about sustainability and putting the pressure of, of the meat and the sustainability or escapement goals on one industry. I was going to say, I mean, that leads nicely onto what, you know, obviously the key focus of this whole series, which is all about sustainability. Do you want to just elaborate on that then and just tell us what it means for you personally and, and how you're achieving it in the fishing that you're doing there? In the halibut, they do test fishing all summer. Halibut fishing is a ground line fishery and they go out and they do testing in, in throughout Alaska, the federal government does. Then they come back and say, here's how many pounds or what your quota should be. And the, in the gillnet fishery, they have weirs or they have aerial flights to see what the escapement is happening or what fish are going up the river or up to the streams. And uh, here in Haines, we've had sonars and fish weirs, which stop the fish from going up the river. And then they go through these little holes, openings, and they count them. They, they try to hit the escapement goals. There's a lower and the upper. I don't like the lower one. I like the upper. I think they should maximize the escapement goals, keep the sustainability going, because if you have one bad year, you have to wait for the, the overlap then. But statewide, it does. it's not just in Haines, but all over Alaska, they manage for sustainability to make sure that that fish stock continues to come back every year. So, so is there a certain amount that you're allowed to catch in terms of weight each day of each species? Only in halibut, but in salmon, they watch. and We have uh, fishing districts, we call them areas, and they open them depending on the, the amount of escapement goals. Right now, they're fishing five days in front of town because they hit their escapement goals, which will, will assure sustainability. And then they close a, a district in between because 
the other river system hasn't hit them. Just gave a go, so they took us off the fish there completely, and they moved us way down south, like I said, 40 miles or so, maybe 50, and put a six-inch gear restriction on us so we can allow the sockeye to go through, and then we only get half the district down there. So it's all about making sure the fish get up the river and spawn, and they come back in four, five, six years. It's great to hear, because as I said, I think this is... This is the kind of information we're desperate to get on this podcast because I don't think people are aware of just all these regulations and everything that you have to go through. I mean, you know, to ensure that the sustainability levels are kept, to, like you said, to 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 where you want them to be. Yeah, it's it's been working. It's the state of Alaska is in the constitution to manage the fisheries under the sustainability rule, and it, and it works, and it, and it's a big sales program for the. For ASME and the and the fishery in Alaska say we manage for sustainability, that we don't overfish, that we make sure the fish keep returning. When we do have a problem with a, a lake not getting enough fish, or we talk, call it a stock of concern, and we're taken off them completely, and we allow 100% escapement or as much as we can call 100% into the system, rebuild that run immediately. And there's several of those that happen every once in a while, whether the fish are intercepted by the foreign fish fleet, or they just ran into something that killed them off. And so we have to just close areas down for them. But that's part of the game. We have to live with it. Well, listen, Bill, I really do appreciate you giving up some time to to chat to us today. Um, but for now, Bill Thomas, thank you so much for joining the show. So, David, uh, thoughts on what Bill had to say? Bill's underlying point about sustainability of Alaskan seafood is important. It's in the state constitution that fisheries must be operated sustainably. Uh, He also pointed out that the times that they uh, have to reduce their catch or reduce their fishing areas to allow stocks to build up again. I think that was important. Also, what was really interesting to hear was Bill's work at a policy level and the fact that he was in the legislature for a number of years helping to promote, again, the aims and goals of Alaskan fishermen. Well, before we finish off, I just want to plug another episode coming up in the series, which will be on science and tech in US farming. We'll be looking at GMOs, precision ag and other innovations. And in that episode, I'll be catching up with Monty Peterson, who is a corn and soybean farmer. But like Tina, who we heard from earlier, Monty also has a link to family farming. So I also put a couple of questions for this episode to him. And I started by asking him about the family history on his farm. Well, it goes back uh, four generations. I'm the fourth generation. I am farming today in the area that my great-grandfather immigrated to back in the uh, late 1880s. As he has started farming and uh, my grandfather and my father, I, I follow up in the tradition of production agriculture. And why does that family legacy mean so much to you personally? Well, I think... <laughs> You know, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think that, uh, you know, some way or another, production agriculture, uh, you know, if you grow up in it, it's, it's something that uh, probably is in your blood. It is uh, it's something that uh, my family has uh, taken pride in, in doing. Uh, we're solely interested in producing food for the rest of the world. It is uh, a part of our life. There is an old saying that we do not inherit the land from our ancestors, but we borrow it from our children. David, it's been a pretty packed episode. What are you hoping our listeners will will take away from it? We really would like listeners to just pause and think and reflect on what they've heard. 
These are real people. These are people at the front end of their different farming operations and fishery operations. It's their livelihood. They do it to be sustainable because if they didn't, they wouldn't be in business. Uh, they're also doing it to protect the environment. We see a lot of work that's done in farming, crop agriculture particularly, where technology does help the environment. One thing we have found in the Sustainability Alliance work over the years is when we bring members of the different organisations, such as the farmers and fishermen you've just heard from, to Europe and have them engage with audiences, listening and hearing the real-life experiences of the people who are producing our food is really critical in getting a better understanding and removing some of those misperceptions of American agriculture. And obviously, we've heard from a couple of the guests that we've got coming up in in the future episodes. Do you want to just go into a bit more detail about what you're hoping to achieve with those? I think, again, Russell, a better understanding of the use of technology, science and technology in agriculture. Really looking forward to hearing from Monty Peterson about his use of GMOs, uh, the much denigrated uh, uh, technology, particularly in Europe. But any farmer I speak to in the Americas, and I mean the Americas, not just the United States, who uses genetically modified crops, emphasizes the ease of operations, the environmental benefits, and the safety, increasing safety of their food. So hearing about science and technology, what is coming along, what will help us feed a growing world by 2050, when we need to produce as much food as has ever been produced in the history of agriculture to feed that increasing population. Animal welfare, I think, is a really interesting one. The US gets criticised for not having animal welfare legislation. I think a lot of people forget it's a very large country. There are numerous policies, states, and some federal laws as well governing the animal welfare. One point that is important in animal welfare, be it beef production, pork production, uh, poultry or dairy, is that animals have to be looked after if they're going to uh, produce to their best. And the marketplace is a deciding factor. So when it comes to animal welfare, producing quality meats are driven by marketplace demand, not legislation. Well, that's actually it for this episode. So thanks again, David, and uh, thanks to all my guests that are featured on the show. If you want to find out more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please do visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us. You'll find plenty more information on all the topics we've discussed in this episode. And don't forget, please do subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye.